Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook and I'm joined again today by Charlie Eccleshow and James Moore. Obviously there hasn't been any football at Tottenham Hotspur this week, but there has been big news with the statement coming out on Monday afternoon that Spurs have U-turned on their decision to furlough club staff in April and May and no longer use the coronavirus job retention scheme, which had proven so popular with Tottenham fans, as we heard on our podcast last week. Charlie, what's happened here? Yeah, well, you touched on it there, actually. The the response from the fans was a really important factor uh, from what uh, people I've spoken to have said, that coupled with the wider reaction you know Spurs became I think one source put it like a pantomime villain almost they really became a lightning rod for all the criticism um, that football was taking and I think it it took a lot of people by surprise like Levy his expectation was that yeah there'd be a lot of criticism but that all other clubs would follow suit probably anyway and since other much wealthier corporations uh, were using the fellow staff he thought you know, broadly, once that initial hostility uh, had worn off, people would ease off a bit and their focus would move elsewhere. Now, obviously, other clubs didn't follow suit, partly because they saw the kind of ferocity of the backlash Tottenham got. Uh, so with all of those things taken into account, um, you know, Levy and uh, the club's decision makers realised that they needed to change their minds and do what Liverpool did. But obviously, where Liverpool did it, like... I think it was within two days. I think the announcement came on the Saturday and then the Monday was the reversal. Obviously, it's been a longer process. Um, That's mainly because, I mean, this has been in the works for at least a week now, I was told. Uh, But Spurs being methodical when it comes to finances, wanted to work out exactly where they were going to be getting this money from, that obviously now they're paying their staff in full. Uh, So how are they going to, make that saving so they wanted to make sure they had all of that absolutely down before making the announcement and more or less once they had done that uh, and the final conversations I believe were taking place over the weekend they could make the announcement on Monday but yeah that's uh, broadly kind of how it all came about. Obviously this has come after a big uh, backlash from Spurs fans both through the Tottenham Hotspur Supporters Trust and other groups, but also just, you know, all the Spurs fans you see on Twitter tweeting the club. Um, James, what do, what have you made of how how unified the Spurs fan reaction seems to have been to this? I've got to say, it was actually quite refreshing to see people not just defend their own club just for the sake of it, which is quite often what you see around some of these issues, possibly outside of situations like this one. You know, whatever a club does, you'll see fans defend their, their honour in, in that kind of tribal way, disregarding what that their kind of standards and morals would be in any other situation. So it was, in a way, it was quite refreshing to see more or less universal criticism of the club, really. And we should say credit to to the to the trust, particularly to to Kat and Martin, who we had on last week. You know, they put out a very strong statement after they'd been on after they'd been on the pod, um, and it really does feel like that has made a big difference. And you know, it feels like such a big PR own goal for Spurs because what they're actually offering now. With the stuff, the, the facilities that they're offering to the to the North Middlesex Hospital, and, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen this. But if you haven't, you check out on the website and on the Twitter account. Like, there's a kind of like a floor plan of uh, what they're going to do with the stadium and what's going to be sat where. Where, and it is incredible, really, what they're doing. Uh, so, what they're actually offering is probably better than most other Premier League clubs now. And and in the eyes of most people, they'll actually probably still be the villains. It just seems a bit unnecessary, really. Definitely. I mean, they yeah, you could have. 
avoided all of this. Um, and I, I think for them now, they the hope is that they can, um, you know, move forward and be able to talk about things like this that they're doing without the response just being, well, pay the staff, you know, because, you know, as one person put it to me, they, they could have announced pretty much anything and that would have been the response, you know. So now, hopefully, you know, I think for them, they feel that they've done the right thing belatedly and uh, and everyone can move forward. I think as well, James, just on the response side, I think I think the response was pretty mature from Tottenham fans yesterday as well. I don't think there was too much of a kind of like, oh, you know, this is too little, too late. I think there was broadly just a look, it's happened. We were really angry and upset about it, but at least you have now done the right thing, you know, rather than too much kind of point scoring and saying it should never have been done in the first place, which is self-evident. But, uh, you know, I, I think just probably doesn't need to be said too often. We, we can make that point and then move on to other things. It seems to me like the next big question for Spurs and all this is what's going to happen with the players' salaries. Charlie, are we expecting anything on that this week? Well, those two things apparently uh, aren't related. Um, they, When they were doing this re-forecasting, as they called it, um, in line with the fact that you know they were going to be paying uh, the staff in full, it wasn't you know accounting for... <laughs> player wages uh, being cut or deferred because that needed that would have had to have been completely confirmed before they could uh, include that in their forecasts that doesn't mean it's not going to happen and it, and it, and it could we're going to have to wait and see to a degree it is it is really complicated that situation um that's obviously where the focus goes because you know the directors are taking this pretty hefty pay cut um you know, which again, I think everyone is uh, feels is absolutely what should happen. So naturally, then the focus does turn towards the players. Um, but but those negotiations are so complicated. I wouldn't I wouldn't like to say that we're definitely going to see something um, happen in the next few days. And where do we think overall this leaves Daniel Levy's reputation? I mean, has he salvaged some of it through this U turn? I think so. I mean, there'll there'll be some who you know, we'll we'll feel that the damage has absolutely been done. I think the fact that it is so out of character for Daniel Levy to do this, I mean, everything I was hearing last week was that, look, that once he makes a decision, that's it. And people I spoke to um, for the piece I'm doing on kind of how the reversal came about said they were really surprised because this just, it's, it's not something he normally does. And we had Kat and uh, Martin talk about that last week, that that, single-mindedness is can be kind of uh, a blessing and a curse sometimes so I think some might you know respect the fact that he has been big enough to admit that that was a mistake but I'm sure for a lot of fans it will just be confirmation that he doesn't get it and um, you know is is too focused on the club's bottom line and you know that this was a selfish move so you know, it, it will be interesting to see that response. Uh, it will probably just add to this how divisive a figure he is. It probably just underlines the fact that he's a businessman first and that isn't ever going to change. Yeah, I'd certainly echo echo all of that. Certainly from, from my conversations with my contacts over the last week or so, I formed the impression that you know, Daniel Levy didn't especially care about the bad PR and was much more concerned about the club's bottom lines and therefore I you know I was I was surprised to see this U-turn on 
on Monday, which I think goes to show the depth of feeling on this particular issue. I think as well, Jack, can I just say, I think like um, it's really interesting because bad PR and bottom lines, when PR becomes so bad, then that impacts on bottom lines. And, you know, PR companies are paid a lot of money because public relations and press coverage does affect bottom line so i think it's interesting that those two things have really come together and, and when pr is so bad and you know and it becomes it could actually damage the brand then you really do have to uh think about the bottom lines as well and and i'm not saying you know that's that it's only because the bottom line that's why this decision was taken there's also an element i think you know doing the right thing was important but um it really does show how when pr becomes so terrible that that really that really can have a pretty profound effect on a club or, or any organisation. Harry's sponsors The View from the Lane, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit... Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. Weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel, and travel blade cover. As a listener of our podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover, by going to harrys.com forward slash lane right now. That's harrys.com forward slash lane. Today we're looking back at a forgotten spell in Tottenham history. The Tim Sherwood Interregnum. The salute, the win percentage, the gilet. This only lasted for 28 games, and I think it's largely been ignored by modern Tottenham history, as or kind of written off as a prologue to the Mauricio Pochettino era. But I, today I quite want to explore the question, was this an idea for a club flailing for an identity after the Harry Radnap and Andre Villas-Boas eras, or was it simply a necessary transitional period before happier times? It all started with the very swift decline of AVB, who after a 6-0 defeat at Manchester City and then a 5-0 defeat at home to Liverpool on Sunday the 15th of December 2013 was sacked the next day. James, did AVB have to go? That's a difficult question. I've still not really made my mind up on that uh, six and a half, six and <laughs> six and a half years, years later. later. I was a massive fan of AVB. Um, wow. I mean, he, he was a totally different manager to Redknapp. Um and this is when, when Spurs were in the cycle of kind of flip-flopping between managers at kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. Clearly, the situation in the in the media was, was difficult for AVB. I think it had become almost untenable purely on the basis of what was happening in the press room, really, more than what was happening in the dressing room, I think. The impression I've always had, and I have spoken to some of the players about this down the years, is that the players were quite fond of him and they and they got on well with him and they could see what he was trying to do and they understood they were going through a difficult spell. Um, but he was getting so much flack in the press and it felt like he really just couldn't handle it at all. On the one hand, I, I don't think a manager should be judged entirely on, on how he conducts himself with the media, but on the other, that is that is kind of part and parcel of the game now. As you guys were there, what 
why do you think there was so much criticism and tension between the press and AVB? There were a few incidents where I remember thinking that AVB had just behaved very strangely. So the first at the start of that season was when Hugo Lloris was, I think, knocked unconscious by Lukaku accidentally in a game at Goodison Park. And there was a big, and I think he played on, and there was a big fuss afterwards about whether or not it was right that he should. And the general impression was that AVB had not handled this particularly well. And then after City after City beat Spurs at the Etihad Stadium, I remember, I remember AVB said afterwards, we have to be ashamed, or words to that effect, we have to be ashamed of this. And this was reported in some quarters as AVB tells players to be ashamed of themselves. And it became a kind of AVB versus the players story. And there was some dispute around then as to whether or not that had, that was actually what he said or meant. Um, but there was always the impression with AVB that he was you know, obviously a very, very smart guy and who did fantastically well at Porto. And did pretty well in his first season at Tottenham, albeit, you know, with the help of one world-class player. But I think he just rubbed people up the wrong way. Like, that was the impression of his time at Chelsea, where obviously he only lasted up until February, I think, of the 2011-12 season. And at Tottenham, where he lasted one and a half seasons. And I think in both instances, Chelsea and Tottenham, the results weren't really what killed him. It was that I think he basically used up all of his goodwill in both instances. I think, but you know, if you hear reports from people behind the scenes at Chelsea back then, they're certainly not positive about him, about how, you know, how sort of highly strung he was. And I think there was a similar story at Tottenham where clearly he fell out with a lot of people. And I think ultimately that is what really did for him in the end. It was his, his relationships with people, players, media, rather than simply the results. Like Spurs were only, I think, five points off fourth when they sacked AVB Christmas 2013. So it wasn't fatal. And, you know, the team was going through transition post bail. So I think it could, but I think ultimately it was the personal side rather than the football side that killed him. Anyway, let, that's really yeah, AVB podcast is for, is for another time. Yeah, I'll save that one. <laughs> uh, this is all about Tim. Um, so the day after AVB was sacked, I think Tim Sherwood was appointed as the manager for the rest of that season. Um, let's just talk a little bit, before we get into exactly what happened with Sherwood, what was Sherwood's reputation like at the time? Because he had done a lot of good work with the academy, hadn't he? Yeah, and I think that still remains. Like, you know, I've spoken to quite a few people from the academy at that time, and they speak really highly of him and say he was a really important bridge. Um, so the youth academy with like John McDermott, Chris Ramsey, those guys were, you know, were developing players and, and that was really important. But then bringing in Ferdinand and Sherwood to look after uh, like the under-21s, I think as it was then, now the under-23s, uh, that sort of gave it a bit of heft and, and Sherwood really pushed um, the case for those younger players. Um, you know, he really wanted them to be in the first team. He was really insistent they were good enough. Um, so he had a really good reputation, you know, for developing those players. And obviously we see that coming out when he takes over as manager because he gives a lot of young players who, some of whom have become really important players for Tottenham, their chance. Yeah, completely. And, he also came in with the promise of playing a very different style of play from what Spurs had seen under AVB. So AVB was very kind of patient, slow, methodical, 4-3-3. And Sherwood came in promising gung-ho, 4-4-2, you 
He, I remember he famously once said he didn't believe in defensive midfielders. He wanted his midfielders to be able to attack and defend. And it led to a very, very different looking team. Yeah, well, I was just going to say that because I remember um, that game being out and looking, you know, you look at a team lineup on Twitter or whatever, like, uh, and I remember being out doing some Christmas shopping, I think. So it was just before that. It was 22nd of December and looking at it being like, what, how is that? You know, tr- you know, when you try and work out like what the formation is or anything like that. And you've got a mid, you've got a back four and then you've got Lamella, Dembele, Sigurdsson, Eriksson, Soldado and Adebayor. Um, so the, in what was a 4-4-2, but, you know, so your, your centre mids were, I mean, it must have been Sigurdsson and Dembele nominally starting as central midfielders. I think it was pair. Ericsson and Dembele. And I think oh, Sigurdsson was played out wide, I think, from memory. I think so Ericsson's in a central midfield, midfield pair. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, is pretty punchy for an away game against what was Maurizio Pochettino, Southampton. But obviously, but it worked, James. I mean, they won, they won that game 3-2. Yeah, it was one of those matches where it kind of felt like, you know, Caution was kind of thrown to the wind, really. Um, and, and a lot of attacking, attacking players were thrown into the side. You know, as Jack says, it was a it was a 4-4-2 classic, sort of two two banks of four. Den, Dembele and Eriksen in the centre midfield, you know, just chucking the ball forward as much as they possibly could. I don't remember there being much of structure to the way the game was played. Um, and it was all a bit chaotic. And I think there were some quite weird goals. I know Lloris made quite a big blunder for one of the Southampton goals. And I think... Hoyveld scored an own goal for Southampton as well, uh, for Spurs as well. It was all it was all kind of a bit chaotic. Very, very different to AVB's sort of very measured and controlled approach. And it is worth pointing out that I think Tim Sherwood has a 100% record against Pochettino as well. Three, three, three Premier League matches and three wins. Two for Spurs against Southampton and one for Villa against Spurs. What more proof do you need? I remember, um, I remember a press conference before Spurs played City... This was when City were managed by Pellegrini and were... Obviously, City won the title this year. They were playing amazing football, basically 4-4-2, usually with Aguero and Negredo up front or Aguero and Dzeko later in the season. And Sherwood took this as proof that, you know, 4-4-2 can work. There's no reason you can't play 4-4-2 in English football. City had proved it and he wanted to carry on doing the same thing. I think, obviously, in reality, it's like, you know, it's easier to play that way if you have... David Silva, if you have basically the best squad in the league and you have players as clever as David Silva and Samir Nasri in the wide areas who aren't really wingers, and then you've got Yaro Torre and Fernandinho in the middle. Um, whereas with Spurs, they just like they didn't have the players, they didn't have the expertise, they didn't really have the sort of coaching that Pellegrini had brought to, to City, and it all just seemed incredibly haphazard. Yeah, you have to bear in mind this was before uh, Danny Rose and Kyle Walker had really progressed to be kind of among the top fullbacks in world football they were both sort of fairly sort of middle of the road fullbacks really at that stage and and, and in a back four with Michael Dawson who at that stage I guess must have been kind of in his early 30s and Vertonghen who was really struggling for form actually Kirikas in this game you know leaving an leaving a defense like that exposed you're really not doing yourself any favors at all to what extent were supporters around you at the time James were they sort of up for this because obviously an element of all fans is you are kind of tempted to just play like the most attacking uh options available to you like were people how quick was it before people were like whoa this is kind of crazy and how much is it like yeah let's let's give this a go this could this could work yeah i mean people are always up for things like that when it's going well right i mean Mm. and early in that season there was you know a run of games 
I mean, you know, you go through the first five league games of the season now. This is obviously under VS Boas. So 1-0 win at Palace, a 1-0 win at home to Swansea. Both of those were Soldado penalties. A 1-0 defeat at Arsenal, a 2-0 win over Norwich where Spurs did play well, uh, and a 1-0 win at Cardiff with a last-minute goal from Paulinho. Uh, and then, you know, like other kind of 1-0s and 1-1s and 0-0s and whatever else through those opening months. It was like, you know, it, it wasn't like the kind of football that Spurs fans really wanted to see. Um, it was, like I say, very patient very sort of passive uh, and, and you know Sherwood coming in and rattling a few cages and trying to get the team to play slightly more dynamic attacking football obviously did appeal to people and to be you know, to his credit I think in his first sort of five or six games they had a really really good record and uh, you know it, lo- it looked like he may actually be the man for the job but sadly it didn't really work out that way. And the most famous game of all I think I mean at least from a positive point of view was the 2-1 win at Old Trafford back when David Moyes was still Manchester United manager. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be that surprised by it because it was Moyes, but I remember at the time thinking, <laughs> wow, you know. Yeah. What is Even though, you, what, Tottenham had won the previous season yeah. under AVB, the Dempsey yeah. game? Yeah, that was also the period where, obviously, yeah, Spurs, as you say, had won the year before, but a lot of teams broke Old Trafford hoodoos that year. Yeah, um, yeah. I think Newcastle, Newcastle Everton, and quick Everton, succession, yeah, yeah. and West Brom won there. Like, it, it was it, it was a good time. Uh, to go to Old Trafford but still you know it's a 2-1 win and again they played two up top you know they were brave you know their midfield that day was I mean a bit more conservative that you had Dembele and Capu as the central midfield pair but you still had Lennon and Eriksen and then Soldado and Adebayor we should, you should probably mention Adebayor I mean he had really fallen out of favour under AVB and clearly him and Sherwood had some kind of affinity because the second Adebayor was back in the team under Sherwood. He was playing fantastically well and scoring goals in more or less every game in those first couple of months. He just looked like a completely revitalised centre-forward. And obviously he scored a goal at Old Trafford in that game. And it just felt like that was the big thing, that was the big difference really in a team was that they had a centre-forward suddenly who could score a goal more or less every week. Whereas before, you know, Soldado, I think as everybody knows, was really struggling for goals in the early part of that season. Yeah, and you know, and you've got to say, you know, you give managers credit for their man management and their way to motivate players. And to get a tune out of Adebayor, who a lot of managers have struggled with, you know, showed clearly had, this, you know, he was doing something right. My my memory of this time is that the longer it went on, the more obvious it was that Sherwood wasn't going to be the long term manager for Spurs. But that seemed to embolden him to <laughs> be a little bit more vocal. And there, there was a. I remember reading a quote from Les Ferdinand about this in an interview, and he'd said that without a shadow of a doubt, Tim's outspokenness came after the realization that we weren't going to be there beyond the end of the season. Tim felt that he had to protect his own corner. Sometimes, if people are not banging the drum for you, you have to bang it yourself, and you have to bang the tambourine and play the harmonica as well. And I think that quote really sums up the kind of latter era Sherwood. In the sense that he did, he you know he was very abrasive and not in a bad way, but he was very opinionated and he'd tell you what he thought about things and he'd call out his players or he'd say that he wasn't impressed with the Spurs signings or the players weren't fit enough, that sort of thing. There was I remember a hilarious issue with uh, George Jesus, the then Benfica manager, when Spurs were getting knocked out of the Europa League, where uh, George Jesus said something I think to Sherwood or wound him up in the technical area. Wasn't and he mates of AVB? I think there was kind of a suggestion that that Sherwood had sort of been working against AVB almost at, towards the end of his reign, and that George Jesus and AVB were kind of 
quite good pals going back to the time when ADB was working in Portugal. And I think it was something to do with that, wasn't it? Yeah, so I read, I found some quotes online earlier, and like, I really hope these are genuine because I'm going to read them out on air. <laughs> uh, 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 but so this is an interview which George Jesus gave around then after this issue with Sherwood. So basically, Sherwood, so, so he's looking back on this issue and explaining why it happened, and he said, I told Andre that if we beat Tottenham, I would give Sherwood a mauling in the press conference. I would have said that Tottenham were much better under Andre, and now they had zero idea tactically. When we scored, I'm not sure why, it was instinctive, I did a little dance, as if to say to him, you're taking a hiding, and you don't even realise how. <laughs> now, I think those are the... I, I'm, I think those are genuinely the best quotes I've ever read from a manager about another manager in my life. Like, and that's just incredible. Yeah, Jesus sounds like, it sounds like, you know, the his, friend, his, his friend has been dumped, uh, you know, and left for someone who he considers to be a complete chump. And he's really, you know, looking out for his mate and trying to get his revenge on this guy. Um, but because those are some really punchy uh, quotes from him. And, you know, they had, they're kind of, physical coming together was also brilliant well worth a watch and Sherwood said afterwards that he in the second leg he he wouldn't he wouldn't shake George Jesus' hand I think or maybe he only would out of respect for Benfica because ben, he respects the club Benfica but doesn't have any time for Jesus honestly it was like you know you could you could do a whole podcast simply on that issue like it was a fantastic bit of managerial technical area handbags of the sort that we don't really get enough of nowadays. This is the good old days of managerial banter, 2014. What um, was it like, Jack, covering him? It was weird. It was just very, very different from AVB because AVB is so, like... Uh, AVB is very... There's so much jargon and there's so much... Like his, it's not that his English is bad. It's just his English is like... It looks like it kind of felt a little bit like... It was very textbooky, if you know what I mean. Mm. And he was very, very, like, considered... Like process and that sort of thing. Yeah, Whereas Tim Sherwood just shot from the hip, hmm. and it's 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 always kind of weird. And if you go go into a press conference and so, you know you ask a question, and then somebody answers it directly and honestly, like it takes a bit of getting used to when you're used to like some you know textbook answers instead. Um, but I liked him. Like I I you know I thought he was open and honest and friendly, and he gave good answers. And I kind of kind of understood what he was trying to achieve like I don't look I don't think he was the right manager for Tottenham in the, the medium term like but I'm we can get onto the, the full appraisal later on but I did yeah I certainly warmed to him as a person I do think he's very good on them in the media because he has opinions like there's nothing worse than when you're watching tv or listening to a podcast or whatever and the person who's talking doesn't have any opinions whereas Tim Sherwood has a lot of opinions and that makes for good telly so I, yeah, like on a personal level, I liked him. And look, and the, the, I think if we're going to do the positives, the one thing we have to do is the youth players, Charlie, because they were, you know, playing Kane, Mason, Bentaleb, Rose, Walker, Norton, etc. That season was fantastically beneficial to Spurs in the in the medium to long term. Can I pull you up on something there? Yeah, he didn't play Mason. He was out on loan at Swindon. Common misconception. <laughs> um, yeah, a very important correction there, James. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but he laid, you could argue he laid the foundations somehow for Mason. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt he did amazing work with him before that, but it's not in the first thing. So, yeah, no, I mean, he absolutely, that that is his legacy. And, you know, he, he can be proud of that both as a manager uh, and when he was working with those players before. I mean, yeah, he gave Kane that chance. I don't think a lot of managers 
really would have done that. You know, like there, that took bravery and trust. And he and Chris Ramsey and and those guys, they really do believe strongly. They're like, you know, if these guys are good enough, just play them. Like, there's no reason not to do it. And you can see that in Sherwood's management. Um, and it would be, it's a really interesting counterfactual. Had he not given Kane that chance, how differently Kane's career would have panned out? Because he was getting to the point where he'd had a lot of loans, he hadn't really kicked on. Um, and who knows, you know, whether he would have got frustrated sooner and there hadn't been, you know, anyone really fighting his corner, uh, whether he, he might have moved or developed slower. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important legacy that Sherwood yeah. left. It. It, is, it is kind of a terrifying sliding doors moment, that, isn't it? How close we we may have come to not seeing Harry Kane do all the things that he's done in the last sort of five or six years. You know, I mean, in, in even under Sherwood, I mean, I, I did the maths last night and he played in 23 minutes of Sherwood's first 16 Premier League matches. So even under Sherwood at first, he barely played, probably basically until the point that Sherwood realised he wasn't going to get the job anyway, so there was just no risk and he could chuck him in. Mm. But I mean, more or less as soon as he chucked him in, I think the first game he started was a Sunderland game and he scored. And he scored again at West Brom and again against Fulham. Uh, so he kind of established himself in the team very quickly. And people often talk about that, the Villa game from the next season. And we've mentioned it on this podcast before, where he scores a free kick in the last minute and wins Pochettino the game when Pochettino was fearing for his job. Yeah. But actually, you know, he had scored a few goals in the previous season at the back end and, and looks like a capable Premier League striker. Yeah. I mean, at this point, he's he, t- he turns 21 uh that summer so you know it, it is it, it he's still really young but it is getting to the point where you know when you're 21 22 you want to be playing for the first team especially having had you know he'd been on loan to three separate clubs uh across the previous couple of years and he would have had to take a step down Kane like he if he'd left Spurs that summer with or you know the following year under the new manager without having played much football like he you know he wouldn't have played he wouldn't have gone to a club of Spurs level would he he would have gone to a different a different team so I do think sorry four I do clubs think, yeah I do think any discussion of Sherwood has to be has to build in the fact that he's been hugely important in bringing through these young players I do think as well that there is a little bit of snobbery about Tim Sherwood uh, I think this is probably more of a media thing or maybe even more of a Twitter thing and you know I, I fully hold my hands up and say I have been part of this it's media people past. on Twitter yeah it's mm. media people on Twitter store. Yeah, making very easy jokes about how he's not he's not very good and he or he's you know he doesn't understand football or he's stupid, which is or he plays which ridiculous. Walker as a number ten. Yeah, and look, there's tons of de- decisions that you can quibble with that Sherwood has made, and it's I think it's totally fair enough to say that he you know he's probably not good enough to have been manager of Tottenham or at least not a permanent manager of Tottenham. And yeah, I think a lot of a lot of the Sherwood narrative is just quite mean and personal. And I say and, and I and I say this as somebody who invented the nickname Tactics Tim. <laughs> Go on. Which is, That's which a bit is of a ridiculous. Humble brag, that. Yeah. Which is a ridiculous. And, you know, and I'm the legend who invented that, Tactics Tim. Yeah. Like Sherwood has won a Premier League medal as a player. What have I ever done as a player? Or yeah, nothing. Um and Wait, you know, Jack, Jack day, can you elaborate on inventing Tactics Tim? Uh yeah, so it was the day um it was around the time of. Let me get this straight in my head. Uh, I think it was even the day around the time that he got the job. I just remember I was in the pub with Miguel Delaney, and we were just chatting about it, and uh, we landed on on Tactics Tim as like a, a silly nickname. 
Uh, and little did we know it would get into wider circulation. How did you then put it out there? Did you, you tweeted it live? No, no, I never tweeted it, I don't think. Um, I just, you know, just do my, I just, we just kind of started saying it and then other people started saying it and then it got picked up by The Guardian and uh, it snowballed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, but I regret, I regret taking the piss out of Sherwood because, you know, he knows far, far, far more about football than I do. I mean, we probably shouldn't go too, like you say, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? Like some of the criticisms were probably justified and, and clearly there was an issue by the end that a lot of players looked like they'd sort of stopped really caring yeah. and it was alluded to was it was it the liverpool game james jack yes where the liverpool the game, are, yes where they're just where, kind of like they look like they're about to go out for a pre-season friendly or a legends game or well something. mark lawrenson described it as them looking like they were uh, queuing for a bus right. and Tonga was like leaning against the wall and all the other players were kind of just sort of standing there sloped shoulders yeah. looking pretty disinterested really yeah then, then they lose the game 4-0 yeah famously i think it was David Aronovich, the um, Times columnist and big Spurs fan, who tweeted something like, as soon as I saw that that image of them slumped in the corridor before the game, I turned it off because I knew Spurs would get battered. Hmm. And they did. And, but I mean, yeah, and they it's, did. it's kind of accurate, that, isn't it? it? It is, you know, you could kind of tell from that kind of body language that a, that a team is done for the season. And that was quite near the end of the season. Once, you know, that early good form had kind of worn off and they were starting to kind of fall away a little bit. Liverpool were in fantastic form at that point. Obviously, it was the season they very nearly won the title. Um, and they got absolutely battered. And if I think there's a legitimate criticism to be made of Sherwood, it is not... Obviously, he did fantastically well to get a lot out of the younger players. But I think Spurs had some slightly older, slightly more expensive players who clearly didn't respond at all well to Sherwood's approach. You know, Sherwood's approach they saw as being incredibly old-fashioned and quite basic and, you know, players who were brilliant under Pochettino for years. I'm thinking specifically of Eriksson, Vertonghen and Moussa Dembele. And it was like Sherwood didn't really know how to use them. Like, just think of the contrast between Dembele in that season and Dembele in future seasons, or Vertonghen, who I don't think Sherwood especially rated and then has become an all-time great at Spurs in the seven years since. So clearly there's like a big, like clearly Sherwood's approach didn't get the best out of those players. Like I remember just quite often going to games and you see Sherwood just like looking kind of baffled and angry. Uh, It was always Paulinho, who to be honest was really bad for Spurs, let's be honest, but just shouting like, Paulie, Paulie! And it was, you know, you could tell that there wasn't, there wasn't really much of a kind of, you know, respectful interaction and exchange of views between Sherwood and some of the senior players. So clearly that, you know, that was an area where he did fall short a bit. I mean, it does feel, and I, because I think it's really interesting, that issue about the snobbery. And I definitely think there is something in that, that, you know, we, uh, we look at British managers in a very different way. And, and often when you talk to these guys and, you know, you can see why for some people that is really persuasive and convincing. Uh, you know, you, you touched on some of the players who it didn't work with there, but there were others for whom it did. And because the thing is, some people respond to different things and some people like things maybe just being put them in more simple terms and not overcomplicated. The, the problem is, is that you need to be adaptable and from all accounts, uh, Tim Sherwood wasn't and it was basically like look I've got this one way of doing it there were reports in fact at that uh, the time of that Liverpool game that the players were a bit like we have no plan B you know it's basically like you either do this this is the the only way of playing football and if you don't well uh, we're kind of screwed and I think the way 
those six months panned out is kind of how you would expect it to pan out over a longer period if you know he were to have got a job like Tottenham permanently in that it started out reasonably well um but then once the but that kind of it could only last for a certain amount of time you know you do it's kind of like the way people talk about like underlying numbers and uh, xg like that will catch up with you over time and i kind of think if you only have one way of playing and if that way of playing is quite high risk that just will catch up with you over time and so it proved quite quickly in that um, half season at Spurs. I mean, it, th- there were some quite damning comments that he made about Vertonghen, just to go back to that. Um, after he left, he said of Vertonghen, so this is in December 2014, after Pochettino has taken over. Uh, Vertonghen is so poor, he can't move his feet. He looks elegant with the ball, but he just can't defend this guy. I mean, you know, that's of a player who he had worked very closely with for sort of six, seven months, a few months previously. It's fairly, it's fairly damning to come out and say something about about a play that you've worked with like that, isn't it? I, it just seemed pretty extraordinary to me. Yeah, those comments I, haven't aged well. And I know, you know, it's easy with the benefit of hindsight to say that's absolute nonsense, or perhaps not given how Vertonghen has played in the last few months. But it is just like, I, I kind of think that's the kind of unedifying comment that he kind of had a habit of making that that I think has probably worked against him when it's come to trying to get other work further down the line perhaps well exactly i was just going to say that there are two things there one that's kind of the, the the sort of comment you'd expect someone to make where you know they, they maybe don't know uh too much about the topic b uh or actually did i say one and then two i may have messed up my uh systems there a or b uh either way you don't burn your bridges with future players i mean that's like rule one of like football diplomacy why even if you did feel that why would you come out and say that when who knows years down the line it might be that you want to work with Vertonghen again or you want to work with a player that knows Vertonghen or an agent that knows Vertonghen like that absence of diplomacy i'm sure has gone a long way towards him um you know having not many jobs uh, in the years since when i'm sure talent wise he's good enough to have had you know some some Premier League roles more than just the one he had at Villa after Tottenham. Yeah, like the one thing we know about Premier League chairman when they come to make these kind of appointments is they do want company men. Like they don't want, you know, honesty and telling it like it is is like valuable for if you're Sky Sports and you're booking guests or whatever. But maybe if you're a Premier League chairman and you want someone to manage your team for, you know, 12 to 18 months, you don't really want someone who is going to tell it like it is too much in public. But I think, it's, I think Tim Sherwood did kind of... I felt like he really tapped into something with a lot of people in the sense that he was he was just quite... He was such an engaging and outgoing character. He he actually inspired quite a lot of quite funny writing. Like, there's a there was a fantastic piece written by the great Dion Fanning in the Irish Independent about Tim uh, during his... Towards the end of his spell of manager. It's got so many fantastic lines that I won't... I, I won't read it all out, but I would really, really beg you to go and read it, even you know, six years on, it's still a brilliant piece of work. And he said of Sherwood's Tottenham, Tottenham currently resemble a house that is being remodelled by an enthusiastic amateur who refuses to acknowledge the mounting chaos. <laughs> but honestly, the whole thing is worth reading uh, by Dion Fanning in the Irish in the Irish Independent. Um, so one thing we've got to touch on, which I don't know if we've done in quite enough detail yet, is the win ratio. James, yes. you've been doing the numbers. I, Talk I us have, through them. I have the numbers. So yeah, that, he's got his fifty percent win ratio, which puts him above Harry Redknapp, uh, above Martin Yol, above Wande Ramos for what it's worth, 
but below Pochettino, below AVB on 55%, interestingly. But finally, it does put him above uh, Jose Mourinho, who is on 42.3% win ratio in all competitions. Also, in the Premier League, according to this from the BBC, Tim Sherwood has a higher points per game in the Premier League uh, than Pochettino. 1.91 for Sherwood, 1.89 for Pochettino. And Sherwood in the Premier League has a win percentage of 59.1% and Pochettino's was way down at 55.9%. The numbers don't lie. So there you have it. So there you go. Better points per game than Pochettino. Three wins out of three against Pochettino. I think that says... I think the facts... James, the facts speak for themselves. They do. They really do. I mean, it's, it's undeniable proof. So I think that's probably all we've got time for on the Tim Sherwood pod this week but guys if you've got any spurs topics managers players games seasons controversies transfers anything that you want us to talk about on the podcast please tweet us and we will talk about them because there is not going to be any football for a while um but that is all our time for this week thank you very much for joining us thank you charlie and james thank you tom and if you're looking for more spurs content our colleague andy mitten has done a fantastic interview with victor wanyama talking about his time at Southampton, Celtic, Tottenham, lots of interesting stuff about his time at Spurs, his injuries, relationships with Pochettino, the Champions League campaign last season. It's a really, really fascinating interview. Uh, We definitely recommend it. You can read that on theathletic.com. If you're not a subscriber yet, you can get a 90-day free trial. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod.